0: when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well and um, they speak about worship among other things. You remember that moment, you can picture it in your minds. And in verse 23, Jesus tells her, he says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people To worship him. The father is seeking such people to worship him. And, you know, I thought to myself, what an interesting thing to say. I mean, if if God knew us and he called us before we were formed in our mother's wombs. Why is he still seeking us? Why does he still? Why does he say that? And then I realized that people may be called by God. But they may not be living out their calling. See, to be called is to be powerfully brought to Jesus by the working of the Holy Spirit in your lives. And so we find that people often profess Christ, but they may not actually be living in Christ. They aren't walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. Now, the Jews of of Isaiah's time had strayed a long way away from God. And much of the modern church today is not too different. In fact, in the Jewish time, in Isaiah's time, that often happened in history. And so God had to take the Jewish people, put them into captivity. They had to go through a lot of difficult times. And we find even to this day, the Jewish people are going through some very difficult times. In Isaiah's time, they perverted the law by adopting many of the sacrifices and rituals of the pagans that were lived around them. They weren't weren't really worshipping God. And God was angry with them, and they were false worshippers. And so, as I said, the problem is still relevant in our church today. Much of the modern church is steeped in human tradition and showmanship and entertainment. And many churches have strayed away from true biblical Christianity. Many churchgoers are not even saved. They haven't been born again. They haven't repented of their sin. They have no personal relationship of the Lord Jesus. In fact, many of them continue to live in sin just like the world does no different. And many no longer worship in spirit and in truth. So what kind of worshiper is God looking for? And that was the question that really nailed it for me right up front was God gives the answer in Isaiah 66 verse 2. The second part, he says, this is the one to whom I will Remember the question, what kind of worship is God looking for? This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. There it is. You heard Letitia this morning. in spirit and, and tremble, tremble, tremble. This is who the Father seeks. These are the worshipers that, who worship in spirit and truth. And you know the prophet Micah, He lived about a hundred years later. In Micah six verse eight, he says, "What does the Lord God require of you to do, but to do justice, to love kindness? And to walk humbly with your God. So the Father's not just seeking true worshipers, He wants their lives to be characterized in a certain way. And so you start to see a common word popping up. A word called humble, humility, humbly. I discovered there's lots of it in the Bible. And uh, the Hebrew verb. For walking humbly doesn't mean you go about in sackcloth sackcloth and ashes. You You don't look miserable all the time. It's not about feeling sorry for yourself. In fact, one commentator called it measured and careful conduct. So what he's saying is that we must defer all the time to the way and the will of God as revealed in his word. That's what walking humbly means. We defer to the way and the will of God as revealed in his word. So if you really want to please God, you mustn't presume to go your own way. Just going through the motions of our faith is meaningless, folks. If we're not doing justice, loving kindness and walking humbly with our God, those three things go together. And you know what? Jesus is our model worshiper. He's our model. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, verse 7 and 8, he says, Jesus took the form of a servant, being in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Aren't those the qualities of a true worshiper? Taking the form of a servant? Humbling oneself through obedience to the point of death? And I had a bit of a chuckle when I realized that when his disciples were arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom. Remember, they were, they were arguing amongst themselves. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, Lord? And Jesus rebuked them in Matthew 20, 26. He said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know what was amazing to me is how they brought up this greatest issue in chapter 20 after he's already explained the greatest in chapter 18. I don't know if you noticed that. But in chapter 18 verse 4, he said to them, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what were they arguing about? It obviously didn't sink in at the time. You see, in the kingdom, humility works differently. Jesus said in Luke 18, 14, he said, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And James confirmed that. He said in James 4, 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And then Paul confirmed it as well in Philippians 2, 9. He said, therefore, God has exalted, highly exalted Jesus. And that was because Jesus humbled himself. So do you see the link here? When you begin to walk humbly before your God, your God will exalt you in due time. And I'm not talking about some form of delayed gratification here. We're not doing it so that we will be exalted. We're doing it to please God. So the question for me then was, so how can I respond, Lord? Is there some sort of way that I can change my, my self-centered nature? Is there some way I can just flick a switch and I become all humble and trembly? And I realize there isn't. We, we need to seek God. We need to humbly ask him to help us. And in Jeremiah uh, 29 verse 12, Jeremiah says, You will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. A bit further on in Jeremiah 33 verse 3, he says, call to me and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and hidden things that you've not known. David knew what this was like. In Psalm 105 verse 3 and 4, he said, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. then the prophet Zephaniah wraps it up in Zephaniah 2 verse 3 he says seek the Lord all you you humble of the land who do his just commands seek righteousness and seek humility there it is again so seeking God continually and walking humbly with him clearly go together So how can you walk humbly before him if you're not even aware of his special presence? How can you walk humbly before God if you're not seeking him? Surely then he's a God who's afar off. And the word the Hebrew word for seek, it's it's it implies a wholehearted commitment. It's it's not aimlessly just looking around. It implies somebody who's persistently seeking for something that he knows is going to change his life. And he has the faith that the goal is worth it. That's the kind of seeking. And so we have to come to a place where you put aside every trace of self-righteousness and every trace of pride in the process. Don't think you can come to God and not be humble in the process. We serve a mighty God. As a church, we've all watched the teaching on accountability in the recent um, This Is Church series. And if you remember, if you've watched it, everybody watched that here? Accountability? No? If you remember, Andrew spoke about having blind spots. And... uh, a blind spot is an area in our lives in which we continually do not see ourselves or our situation realistically. In other words, we've got a picture in our heads of, of who we are and what we're doing and we think that that is real. But it's not. You see, we're not seeing it realistically. It's a blind spot. And I believe that t- true humility and A broken and a contrite heart is a blind spot with many Christians. Many Christians. We kind of think we're humble, but we're not really. So God is is looking for those whose hearts are humble and contrite and who tremble at his word. God's looking for those who earnestly seek him and who worship him in spirit and in truth. And Father, I pray that you'll find us like that, Lord. I'm not talking about a false kind of attention-seeking humility here. I'm not talking about a humility that's born out of a feeling of unworthiness. Because both of those things involve a a lot of thinking about yourself. You see, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. This isn't what we see in our churches today. And Paul had to check many of the churches, even in his day, about their pride and about their self-centeredness. Now you notice I'm running through a lot of scriptures this morning. I really don't expect you to keep trying to keep track of them because I've got them written down. If anybody wants them afterwards, there's about 26 or so. Um, I just wanted to preach scripture to you because it's all in here. If you need them afterwards you just let me know and i can let you have them you can follow through and i really would advise do that but paul starts off he he writes to the the ephesians in chapter 4 verse 1 and he says walk with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love why did he say that because they weren't doing it he said the same to the philippians in chapter 2 verse 3 he said do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And then to the Colossians, chapter 3, verse 12, he says, put on then humility, meekness, and patience. And above all these, he says, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So we can see that Humility is very closely linked to love in community. He's talking about Christian love here. You see, you have to be part of a local church. Not just going to church. You have to be part of it. You're, you're in the body. You're a part of the body. You're not some separate sort of thumb digit lying on the floor, uh, separate to a, another body. You're part of the body. You, you flow together. You live together. You dwell together. And, you know, the only person you can love in this way if you're not in a local church is yourself. Makes no sense, does it? I mean, what's the point of walking humbly by yourself? That's just dumb. And then Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4, he says, love does not insist on its own way. See, this kind of love that Paul talks about is a sacrificial love. It's given away with no expectation of return. Only those who can walk humbly before their God are capable of this kind of Peter makes the same point when he writes to the churches that he was in relation to. With in 1 Peter 5 and verse 5 he says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then in verse 6 he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So how do you humble yourself in this way? How do you do that? You die. You die. You die to yourself. It's the only way. You see, once we've died to ourselves, everyone else, everyone else becomes more important than us. A dead person hasn't, no longer has any needs. A dead person can't be hurt, can't be offended. A dead person's not concerned about his or her rights. And a dead person no longer insists on his or her own way. If you're dead, you're dead. And Paul, you know, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians about the covenant meal, we're going to share that just now. Um, But he had to rebuke the Corinthians for their selfishness about the sharing of the covenant meal. And in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, he said, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. And in verse 20, he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. So is that how Christians behave together? We go ahead with our own meals we seek first our own kingdom and our own righteousness and not God's John Bloom says our selfishness is a master of disguise wearing a thousand masks to cover its motives beloved the root of most of our relational conflicts Is insisting on our own way. I'm right. I know I'm right. And I'm standing on that. Problem straight away. Because someone is going to disagree with you. And it's going to create conflict. So think about that in your own relationships with your spouse, with your children, your parents, your friends, your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Do you like getting your own way? You know, this is how most humans abuse other humans. We manipulate or we try to manipulate for our own ends. Now, I know it's hard to be humble. And when I wrote those words down, I was reminded of an old song. <laughs> For those of you, it's, a, it's an old song. I'm not going to sing it. I'll save you the pain. <laughs> but I'll read you the words of the first verse. He says, O oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be a hell of a man. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble but I'm doing the best I can. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) You see, wanting our own way is instinctive to our fallen nature. It's our default setting in almost all of our relationships. And it's actually very hard to find someone who's genuinely unselfish. Debs and I were talking about this yesterday and Uh, We've got two daughters, our oldest one now who's nearly 46, um, when she was about 18 months old, um, you know what little kids are like when you put them in uh, uh, like a toy pen with some toys in it, and they, they, they grab what they can, and this little girl always surprised us because she was so unselfish. If she had something, she'd give it to the other little child, it was quite amazing, It's amazing how some things stick in your head but generally speaking we as human beings are not like that we we look out for ourselves very quickly and you know while it's generally hard to be humble I also know that most of us are also very nervous about who we can trust so we keep our guards up because you know if you just make yourself vulnerable I can tell you the more vulnerable you become the more you are loved That's true, okay? But also, the more vulnerable you become, the more chance you have of being hurt. But you see, if you're dead, you're not going to be hurt. You're not going to feel anything. So if you really humble yourself before others, it's quite likely they're going to take advantage of you. Because they're also selfish. So who can we really trust? Can we really trust the Lord? We can trust in God. Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not little bits here and there. All your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, not some of your ways, all your ways, acknowledge him. That word acknowledge means know him. It means it's not just, oh, oh, that's God. No, no. It means you know him as an intimate, intimate friend. Know him, and he will make straight your paths. So the Hebrew word for trust there gives you a picture of someone who's lying flat on the floor on their face with their hands stretched out. You can imagine that must be one of the most defenseless positions you could lie in. Anyone could come and kick you. You can't you can't see because your face is on the floor and you're lying there. So it's it's a kind of trust that is willing to have no defence. Or or the other the other picture is when you, you see someone leaning up, up against a pole, maybe with the leg like this, and you you know that if that pole gets taken away you're gonna hit the deck. That kind of trust—you trusting, I'm trusting—that pole's not going to fall over. That's the kind of trust that God is speaking about in that in that proverb. And and once again, uh, my other little daughter, um, when she was about also about eighteen months, Debs and I took the girls for the first time to uh, the Blue Marlin Hotel in Scottboro. You guys will remember that. And they had a swimming pool outside, and this little girl decided she loved the water so she would literally walk down the little um, slope and she would walk out off the, the step straight into the water she knew I was there but she had complete trust that dad would catch her complete trust that's the kind of trust that we see in that particular proverb and so the question is do you know how to come to trust the lord with all your heart do you know how to do that Well, here's a suggestion you need to believe in your heart that you are united with him believe in your heart the bible tells us that in the new testament is full of it paul talks about it so you you what you're doing is you're deliberately signing away your own rights and you decided to become a bond slave of jesus christ and until you do that brothers and sisters you don't even begin to be a saint is a tough one for you. But here's something that I I found helps me and I think it will help you. You can make a declaration out of Scripture. You speak the declaration to the heavens. You speak it to the powers and principalities and you speak it to yourself. And that's from Galatians 2 verse 20. And every time You do it, it sinks in more and more and more. It becomes a reality in your life. And I'm going to read it now, and I'm going to ask you to repeat after me as I read it. You do that? Galatians 2 verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Just hold on to that. That's what you've just said. Those words bring life. I have been crucified with Christ. Okay, next one. It is no longer I who live, live. but Christ who lives in me. me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I flesh. I I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. word of God brings life. That's life. That's life in abundance. So we're united to Christ. We're in Christ. Christ is in us. Salvation is a matter of being in Christ. When we trust in him, we are joined to him by the Holy Spirit. It changes our entire mentality. The old life in Adam has been broken. Our new life is in Christ. There's obviously an overhang from the old life, but our basic position has changed. When we come to Jesus, the very core of our being is changed. We're motivated by a completely new viewpoint of life. And we see it in Paul's life in Philippians 3 verse 7. Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And Paul is also motivated by the love of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, he says, for the love of Christ controls us. That's what makes Paul tick. Christ's love for you Controls you, constrains you. Some of the uh, translations say, and the word means to be gripped by, or to be hemmed in by. This Christ's love hems you in. You you can't get away from it, and it's something that's intellectual in your head, and it's emotional. You can feel it in your. It makes sense in your head, and it resonates in your heart, and it arises because we've come to a conviction. We believe it, God said it, that settles it. And it isn't just in our heads. We're stirred by what Jesus did for us. And we see also with Paul that he's motivated by a new outlook. Once we've come to be alive in Christ, we've got a different mentality. We no longer get excited by the law, legalism, empty ritual, external showmanship. We wanna be real in our faith. With respect, but I cannot, when I think of people going into a a 500-year-old building and they're sitting down in a hard wooden pew and there's a guy in a long white dress who walks up the front swinging uh, something with incense in it and they speak something in Latin and everyone sings one or two songs and they go home. I do not see that as, as real Christianity. I can't. It's not real. You see, once you've come alive in Christ, that stuff is empty human tradition. Paul said in Romans 8 verse 4, we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And our evaluation of people is more spiritual than fleshy and external. In 2 Corinthians 5 16, he said, from now on therefore, from the moment you Christ. The moment you've received him, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. It doesn't matter what that person has done to you or said to you or anything like that. We see them in the Spirit. Even if we'd known Jesus personally, if we'd walked amongst his disciples, we spent time with them, it means nothing. Because Jesus can only be known by the power of the Spirit. So when Paul stopped trusting in his background and his culture and his education, what happened? He gained Jesus. That's what he said in those words in Philippians. So Jesus became to him his savior. Jesus became the forgiver of his sins. Jesus became his friend. In fact, the very things that Paul had lost, he got back in another way through Jesus. Jesus became his circumcision. Jesus cut away the wickedness in his heart and gave him a new nature. Jesus gave him a new nationality. He became a member of the kingdom of God. What group of people did he belong to? Jesus' people. Jesus became his wisdom. Jesus became his righteous status before the Father. Jesus gave him the Holy Spirit. In Christ, he came to be seated in heavenly places. Do you know that that's where you are today? Honest, seated in heavenly places with him. That's the reality. You might think you're sitting on a white plastic chair here. But in the spirit, we are seated with him in heavenly places. So Paul stopped relying on earthy, fleshy advantages and he gained Christ. And this floored him. It humbled him. See, Paul was living for religion until the day when Jesus took hold of him and turned him around. I was living for myself until the day Jesus took hold of me and turned me around. What were you living for? Yourselves? Maybe you weren't even, not even sure, just trying to survive through the day. But what are you living for now brothers and sisters that's the question what are you living for now can you really say as a christian as a bible believing christian that jesus is the center of your universe you see becoming a christian requires a complete change of outlook everything the world thinks is so great gives us no advantages with God salvation comes by trusting Jesus plus nothing else so before we get to experience God's blessing Jesus has got to totally turn us around and bring us to trust exclusively in him so we sign over our rights to ourselves and we can't do this brothers and sisters by holding on to our past no matter how difficult that is You see, we are not defined by our past. We are defined by trusting in him completely for our future. We don't know what the future holds, but we do know who holds our future. Okay. So here's a test of your humility for you. Was something that uh, God spoke to me personally about, only a truly humble person can truly serve anyone could serve but not everyone can truly serve in this context you see, do you find serving a pleasure or a pain do you naturally step up to it, do you look for opportunities to serve or do you wait for someone to call you and say can you do this and can you do that What comes naturally to you? A true servant, you see, doesn't serve to get something out of it. It's not done so that we can feel good. So we need to examine our motives, and that's a good test. God's more interested in the motives of our hearts than the work of our hands. So we need to trust him, and we need to lean hard on him as we serve others, because no servant is going to be completely safe. And that's a tough truth to accept. As you give and you give, you become increasingly more vulnerable as time goes by. And there are times when you're going to get ripped off. You're going to be used. You're going to feel unappreciated. And I'm speaking about the church, not out there in the world. Out there in the world is what you expect to happen. But knowing that this can happen, brothers and sisters, means you are better prepared for it if it does come way and I, C.S. Lewis wrote something once about this, he said I'm nearly finished, he said he said to love it all is to be vulnerable love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken if you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact you must give it to no one not even to an animal, wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries, avoid all entanglements, lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness, but in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, it will become unbreakable, but also impenetrable and irredeemable the only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell so most of our good deeds will be initially unrewarded certainly in this life and if you're the kind of if you're the type of person who needs lots of strokes from people and you've got to be appreciated a lot uh, then you better forget about being a servant more often than not, you'll be overlooked, passed up, behind the scenes, and virtually unknown. But you know what? That's not a bad place to be. Humble and trembly before our God. That's the walk of the truly humble. It's the walk of the true worshiper. That's the walk of someone who trembles at God's word. Because our reward doesn't come from other people. It comes from from God and um, a bit of a confession don't really know what it's like to be truly humble don't really know what it's like to tremble at God's word. But I kind of feel like God's teaching me. felt that my heart was squeezed. So, I want to pray, if you'd like to pray with me. Father, I've walked a long road with you, Lord. I so much that I thought was serving and doing what you expect. And then I realized, Lord, that the, the one you look to is the one with a broken and a contrite spirit and who trembles at your word. And I realized, Lord, that I fell far short. So, won't you help me, Lord? And I'm saying those words as if no one else is here, Father, but I I pray that those words would be their their portion as well. I pray that they'd be able to say the same thing, Lord. We need your help, Lord. We can't do this on our own. And we need one another's help. I'm just so thankful, Lord, that you've planted me in a, in a fellowship where, where people care, where they care enough to be able to, to speak truth and love. And I pray that in the days that lie ahead, Lord, we would be able to grow more and more in that way. In Jesus' name. And I pray, Father, that as we come to your table this morning, I pray, Lord, that we'd be able to set aside our past, our, our issues, our wanting to be great, our wanting to insist on our own way. I pray, Lord, we would, we would be able to look up and see you, see your cross, see what you did for us, to understand your great love and your mercy and your grace. And recognise, Lord, that when we share in the in your body and in, in your blood, that we're remembering your death until you come again. And I pray, Father, that soften our hearts, Lord, soften my heart.